welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthroposing podcast. My name is Kate, and this week we are joined with the wonderful Dr. Evelyn Brister. She's going to share with us some of her research on the American chestnut tree, which has a fascinating history um, that I can't wait to hear more about. So thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Kate. Awesome. Um, I was wondering if we could maybe start with the history of the American chestnut tree. Some people might be familiar um, with parts of the history through books like um, The Overstory or Barbara King Solver's, um, I forget the title of it, but she wrote a novel on Appalachia and uh, the chestnut tree. So could you give us a quick introduction to the American chestnut tree and its history? Yes, yeah, so the American chestnut, it goes by the Latin name Castanea dentata. It's a beautiful, useful hardwood tree. And it was growing throughout the forests of the Eastern US until the early part of the 20th century. So it its range was from Georgia in the south, all the way up through Maine and over into Southern Ontario. Um, it especially, it was especially um, common in Appalachia. And it was not, a, so I live in Western New York. Um, and so I'm used, I think I, I know about the chestnut from living here. I sometimes see them in the woods. Um, and it wasn't an especially dominant or common tree here like it was in the southern part of the Appalachians, but it had a role and it was something that you could see anywhere in the forest, you know, from through New York, Pennsylvania, New England, um, down through the middle Atlantic states. Um, it was a, the forest grown trees had a very straight grain, they're rot resistant, they had pretty high timber value. So you could, people say they weren't the best tree for any single purpose, but they were one of the best trees for every purpose. And so you could use them for fence posts. You could make furniture out of them. Um, in my own house, there, uh, the, the doors on, on, uh, in the bedrooms are made of chestnut. And in my pantry, the cabinets, cabinetry is made of chestnut. I live in an older house. Um, so it had a lot of uses and then it also is a nut producing tree. And so people collected nuts, um, and people in some of the poor mountain regions of Appalachia collected nuts when those fell in the fall and shipped them up the coast to Philadelphia and New York city, um, to the urban areas. So it was a source of income for people. And then it wasn't just, not just people that use American chestnuts. So they're a mass producing tree, which means that the nuts um, come all at once in the fall and they feed blue jays, turkeys, deer. Um, they are also, the, the tree also has a role in the ecology of stream invertebrates, which is maybe not something that you think of immediately. And there's some evidence that it was cultivated by indigenous people before European settlers arrived. The evidence for that, among other things, is that it spread northward after the melting of the ice sheets at a faster rate than we would expect from just the natural spread of the nuts. 
people have been cultivating it here in the eastern United States for a very long time. That all sounds wonderful. So, so what happened? <laughs> yeah, what happened? <laughs> yeah, so what happened was that in the early part of the 20th century, um, that was a time when people were importing plants from Asia. And sometime around the turn of the century, someone imported probably chestnuts from Japan, maybe from China, um, and brought a fungus called the chestnut blight along with the chestnuts that they brought. So the Latin name for that is Cryphonectria parasitica. Um, and it was noticed in New York City around 1904 was the first discovery. And they tried to stop the spread but that was, wasn't very successful. So over the course of a couple of decades, it spread from New York City outward and killed about three and a half billion trees. So a lot that was a very common tree in the forest and a lot of trees died. Ahead of the spread, so in Pennsylvania, for instance, and there was a there was a policy to try to cut down the chestnuts in the hope that you could almost like build a moat like that if there would be a, a moat with no chestnuts, then maybe the uh, fungus would stop spreading and that would save chestnuts south of Pennsylvania. But it didn't happen that way. It didn't prevent the spread of the fungus. And now, even though the tree is what we would call functionally extinct and you see very few full-grown reproducing American chestnuts in the forest, the blight is still there. So even if you... Um, have chest, American chestnut seedlings and you plant them after a period of time, 10 or 20 years, those trees will be, usually become infected um, because the blight's just there. It li lives on other trees, it li lives um, in leaf litter. So removing the trees doesn't remove the blight. What happens with the, the blight? So it in infects a tree. If there's a wound, then the fungus infects the tree and it produces um, oxalic acid, which is not an uncommon um, product of fungal infections and in other plants uh, to that. And so that creates a canker. And if the canker spreads and eventually girdles the tree. And so in time, it's kind of a slow, it's a slow growing disease. A tree might be infected for years before it dies. And the fungus doesn't live below the soil line. So what happens then is that it'll infect a tree. Uh, eventually, the infection will, will girdle the tree and kill it. The roots will still be alive. And if it's a healthy tree, it'll send up stump sprouts. And so it's very common for me to be walking in the woods here and see chestnut leaves, but they're often on pretty small sprouts, like maybe just knee-high sprouts. Sometimes those sprouts will grow bigger and will even become actual full-grown trees growing from an older stump. So they might grow to be several inches in diameter and maybe 20 or 30 or 40 feet high. Usually by the time they get to be a reproductive age, that is after about two decades, the blight has had time to kill the tree. Sometimes those trees, if there's more than one in the area, can produce nuts and you'll even get small young trees coming in. So the tree is not gone from Eastern forests, but it's not thriving. And it's very rarely is it reproducing. 
So there's not a chance that there would be, even if there is some kind of natural resistance in the population, there's no chance that the tree will be able to reproduce and um, spread that natural resistance so that it could be returned to the forest on its own, right? That it, it can't do that on its own. But it's also not in danger really of extinction because it can be grown in other places, in Arboreta, for instance, where it's not going to be infected and so it's not going to succumb to the disease. What is your work with the chestnut trees and how does it involve working with and maybe avoiding the blight? So I'm a philosopher um, primarily, and I do some work with uh, biotechnologists and also with environmental scientists on other projects. Um, and I became interested in the tree because it raises an ethical question of what could we do to bring this tree back? What if we could use biotechnology? And there's a lab at SUNY ESF, which is the um, State University of New York's Environmental Science and Forestry School in Syracuse, where there is a project to restore the American chestnut using biotech. And there's a variety called the Darling 58 that is under regulatory review right now by three agencies, the EPA, by USDA APHIS, and by FDA. So the, the advantage of the biotech variety is that it produces an enzyme that's common in other plants. So the particular gene that has been spliced into the uh, biotech American chestnut comes from wheat. But that gene is found, or a similar gene is found in very many plants, um, including many plants that we eat, like grapes. And it produces an enzyme called oxalate oxidase that breaks down the oxalic acid that attacks the tree. So in 1989, the lab began the process of uh, working to find a solution, a biotech solution to the problem of uh, the blight infection on this tree. And it took a while to identify this particular gene and to have the program up and running. Um, the reason it's being in, sort of uh, reviewed by EPA is to evaluate the EPA will look at the interactions with the ecology more generally. USDA APHIS will consider whether or not this change that's been made to bio to the biotech chestnut could make it um, something like a weed or a plant pest. And then FDA will investigate whether it's safe for or will approve, hopefully, whether it's safe for humans to eat the nuts. Um, so the reason it's going to FDA is specifically because it's a human food. If it weren't a human food, then FDA wouldn't be interested. So Biotech sounds like it might be kind of controversial in some cases because you had mentioned like part of your work with the project is as a philosopher considering ethical concerns and implications. What are some of the things that have kind of come out um, through your interaction with the project? So when I first became aware of this project, I was doing forest restoration with some local parks groups. 
Um, and we had the historical record of the trees that had grown in the park. And in the 1920s, when the chestnuts were eliminated, school children came in and planted sugar maples instead. So that was a pretty common um, way that communities responded to the loss of chestnut. But we were wondering, because we were restoring the forest, if it would be possible to bring chestnuts back. And we looked, you know, investigated what was going on and found out that the biotech lab is just up the street. So it's not yet available because it hasn't been um, approved by the regulatory agencies. It's not yet available for restoration, but I was wondering what would the, the ethical consequences of that be? So what would it be like to take something that has been altered, the genome has been altered by humans, and then to put it in the wild with the intent that the that that genomic change then would spread and would become permanent and would, yes, it would save the species, but it would also always be part of our forests. At the time, there had not been, and there still, I believe, has not been any biotech plant or animal that's been approved in the United States for wild release. So we're familiar with a, a lot of crop biotech including some trees. So now there is a biotech apple tree, for instance. Um, papayas are also uh, approved for biotech. And there's a GM salmon that's approved in the United States that could theoretically get out into the wild. So that's, a, that's, a, that's an animal. Um, but for the most part, that's not, we, we, we use GM crops and we, um, we expect that they are not going to get into the wild. In fact, that's one of the concerns, right? One of the concerns is that if we genetically modify an organism, could it breed with a local plant such that that genetic change would get out? And we've tried to construct biotech um, crops so that that won't happen. So the intent here is just so very different. And I spent a lot of time thinking and talking with people about how we should conceptualize that philosophical problem. That what are the different angles um, that all come together? Maybe I could talk about some of those right now. Yes, definitely. And especially because I think that with GM things in general, it is just really fascinating, but it's also really good to get clear why like what the particular intersection is of like why people are concerned about a particular thing so like even with the example of gm crops then somehow like either uh procreating or spreading into the procreating with wild organisms or spreading into the wild like could you explain for listeners like why even that might be uh, an ethical concern? Right. Well, that is an ethical concern. It's the the potential for damage that could come from biotech crops that um, spread into the wild because usually the biotechnology, the genetic modification is used to try to maybe give the plant some kind of advantage for consumers or for tran transportation. But it could also, in theory, be assisting the plant in terms of its uh, survival, right? And so if we saw a crop species that uh, was genetically modified and then it was able to naturalize, 
then we would be concerned that it might have undesirable interactions with native plants um, and maybe even outcompete them. Um, it's, there's some reasons that's probably not very likely because crops in general need to be cultivated. And um, so crop plants in general are, are not as, not all that commonly the ones that become invasive, but it could happen. And so we're, we've been concerned about that. And then in this case, that concern is sort of in a way, it could be heightened or it could be relieved depending on your perspective because the whole point of this intervention is to make it so that the plant can compete in the wild. And the, the intention of the change is to have a method that would allow restoration and even natural restoration of this tree. So I guess the long-term hope would be that we could manage the genetic modification in such a way that it could be released. And over time, whatever happens to human societies, that the tree would recolonize the forest and begin again, a kind of natural evolutionary process of change. That it would be able to overcome this challenge, like the evolutionary challenge of, 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 a, of a pest that came from another continent that it had never been faced with, has been brought to this continent um, and is like short-circuiting those evolutionary processes. Um, and if we could help it overcome that, then maybe we could like be restarting that evolutionary process. But by doing that, we would be like permanently changing the forest using a kind of biological technology of human creation. Um, and so that can seem very scary. And maybe it seems, you know, the kind of the bigger question is, well, it may be a, a, a good thing in the case of this tree, but is the idea of it a good thing? Does it set some kind of precedent that then we should be concerned about what it might do, like maybe in terms of us getting big heads about the kind of control that we could have with wild systems. It's really fascinating because, at least in the case of the American chestnut, as you explained it, it seems like the reason that the blight occurred in the first place was human intervention. Because, I mean, it's possible maybe that the blight would have traveled from uh, parts in Asia naturally to the United States. But in this case, like, it's the human movement of um, living organisms that facilitated that. And so particularly like with some people who take the view that like intervention is okay if you're restoring like a previous human intervention that maybe harmed or did some wrong to an organism. Um, and in this case, at least it seems like <laughs> humans were responsible for kind of bringing the blight to the American chestnuts in some case. Um, and maybe it's more reasonable than that they should try and fix it. <laughs> it really very much does raise these questions of responsibility. And 
I think when we, you know, talking to plant people, right, when you go out and, and look at the plant world, things have changed just so very much in the last century. I mean, longer than that, you know, the dandelion is an invasive species in North America that was brought from Europe, but like 300 years ago or longer, right? So it's, it's in a way become one of our endemic species. But um, when we think about the extent of invasives and the, the, the role that humans have played in their establishment, and often for very good reasons, often with very good intentions. Um, this summer, I'm working with a research group at my university um, on wetland restoration. And so we're concerned in the areas, the parks and um, sort of public wetland areas that we're looking at, it's just, there's so many invasive species. There's buckthorn, there's honeysuckles, uh, you know, invasive species from China, from Europe. And um, some of them have been controlled. So for instance, there's purple loosestrife from Europe, but we've imported a biocontrol, which is a beetle that keeps it down so that it doesn't take over the wetlands. Um, but when you look at forests, when you look at uh, these particular forests, these mixed hardwood forests of the East Coast, they have been so impacted by pests that have been brought from Europe and Asia. So it's not, it's a case not just of losing the American chestnut, that we have also lost um, uh, elm for the most part from the forest, from Dutch elm disease beach right now are suffering from beach bark disease as well as there's another disease that's coming in that's affecting beach. Um, in the last 15 years or so, our ash populations have been wiped out by the emerald ash borer. Um, white oaks are suffering and hemlocks are suffering. They're being, they've been invaded by the hemlock woolly adelgid. Uh, there's some groves of butternut near my house that are suffering from a disease. And so it's not just that there's one tree that is in bad shape. Forest health is just, is generally declining. And I think a lot of people don't even realize that we're, we're out of touch. Our urban population is out of touch with uh, the threats to forest health. So this particular, in this one case, it seems like, well, maybe we could um, accept some kind of responsibility. Like, is it the case that by trying to create a genetically modified um, organism that we would be sort of continuing that legacy of moving things around, shifting, adding to the human uh, in, you know, impact on the, on the natural environment? Or is this a way of accepting responsibility and trying to repair something that was lost. I started this project, I guess I got involved working with the Chestnut Lab almost a decade ago, maybe not that long. And when I did, I wasn't sure whether I would be in favor of using a genetically modified chestnut to restore the forest. Um, I tried to keep an open mind about that, but the more I've talked with the researchers, the more I've talked with um, tree breeders, the more I've talked with foresters and with just the public, the more it becomes clear that 
there are a lot of people that feel that it's in this, this is one way that we could do something that would be for the sake of the trees. So although we can talk about their timber value or we can talk about their um, value as far as a food resource, we're not living in a time, thank goodness, where we're really dependent on forest nuts for our nutrition. And we're also not dependent on these chestnuts for temper. Like it, when we talk about their benefits to humans these days, it's primarily in terms of thinking in terms of reclamation because they grow fairly well in some places um, where, where mining, uh, there's a mine, legacy of mining, but it's, I think most people are motivated that we could do this for the chestnut and we can do it for the forest. And when we say it's for the forest, it's not just the trees, right? It's also that whole network of living creatures. Um, and because, so because the network of the chestnut was affected by blight in the 1920s, that was before ecology was established as a science. So we have some records of, of the ecology of these forests, but they're not as detailed as we might like. There's, a, a, there's some estimates that maybe seven moths went extinct that had been de dependent on chestnut pollination. But we don't really know exactly whether there may have been more insects that were dependent and just Recently, there's been um, a bee that was discovered that the last time it was seen was in 1920, 1921. And then in 2020, some people discovered it and it appears to be a native bee that is chestnut. I don't think it's chestnut obligate, but it's chestnut dependent. And so it's been found in the chestnut orchards that have been um, there's an organization called the uh, American Chestnut Foundation that um, has been supporting chestnut research. And um, so they found, once they started looking, they found more populations of this native bee. So we don't know if there might be more cases of pollinators like that. As you're talking about responsibility and some of the ethical um, dimensions of uh, the, these types of projects, um, one thing that the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene group is really interested in is the concept of respect. Like, how do we show respect for plants? Um, and I've seen some of your work on this particular issue. Like, what does it mean to have respect in these cases? Um, could you share with us your thoughts on that? This question of what it means to have respect for plants, it, it can mean different things. I have a pretty broad idea about what it might mean. And what I think, I mean, respect is about relationships. And so it's about strengthening relationships and strengthening positive relationships. And so for one thing, I think that there's, there's strengthening respect for this particular tree. And I wanna come back to that. I wanna come back to asking because it's the, 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 the relationship with the tree is probably the one that is the most important, but also the one that is 
less obvious as far as whether or not, because that's the one we're intervening in specifically. So I would instead want to, let's, let's start by thinking about respect outside of just that relationship of us to the species. Um, I think I'm in favor of restoration in general, both because I think it, you know, it can, restoration can benefit a particular place where a forest has been degraded or another, some other ecosystem has been degraded and we can, um, use our resources and our labor and our knowledge to bring that ecosystem back into something that's more like uh more that's more similar to the process to the to the balance it was in before that restores some of the processes that may have been lost um and so i'm in favor of restoration where that's needed but it's not just because of the respect that it shows to the trees but also because Sometimes when restoration activities include the public, I think that also builds a sense of human community. And so there's so many people who um, enjoy and uh, build relationships with each other out of engaging in restoration. And compared to some of the other things we can do with our time, I think that's a really healthy thing to be doing. It also builds awareness of nature and of the state of the forest and so that we don't take it for granted so that we're more aware of the threats to, to health. I think restoring the tree, another way in which restoring the tree shows respect is that it can show respect to the, the you know, to the pollinators, to the entire food web, you know, being aware of um, the relationship between the tree and invertebrates or with birds. So there are, there's, there are all of those dimensions. Um, one, interesting ask, one interesting question that's come up with this question of respect that I, I just really liked, um, it really made me see things in a different way was someone asked, well, what about the fungus itself? You know, like if in, in this case, if we um, spread this genetically modified tree in the forest, would that kill the fungus, right? So we may not think about the fungus as something that we want to necessarily have a relationship with or that this tree doesn't have a healthy relationship, but if we respect it as a living being, then what's the effect? And luckily in this case, the effect is neutral because the fungus can live in many other ways. Um, and when the tree responds, to the infection when a genetically modified tree responds to the infection by producing oxalate oxidase that detoxify detoxifies the fungal products it's not killing the fungus it's protecting the tree so that's the way the mechanism works it's also because that's how the me me the mechanism works that it's unlikely that um, the fungus would develop resistance to it so it's not driving like an arms race with the fungus. Instead, we can see it more as protecting the tree. So I like the way that that question came up, but it makes me wonder if in other cases, we might need to be careful to take all of these perspectives into account, including the perspective of the pest, the perceived pest. Maybe I could come back then to ask, address the harder question. Yeah. Which is what about the relationship with the tree? Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I, I think if we are trying to restore American chestnuts to the forest, then that's intending to show respect to the tree. Um, 
but what does it do to something more like maybe something broader, something more abstract, like our relationship to wildness? Does it in some way make the forest less wild? Um, and we might also ask whether the intervention itself is unnatural um, because, you know, it originated in a lab. I think in order to answer that question, we need to, we could, we could think about what we're comparing it to. So if we were comparing um, one timeline where the pest is introduced, um, chestnut suffers for a century, and then it's slowly restored using genetic modification, would that be preferable to if the pest had never been introduced and chestnut had just gone on its way and stayed a healthy component of the forest? Well, of course I would prefer, I think we would all prefer that there hadn't been this un, you know, unwitting, unknowing intervention that had such negative consequences for the tree and for everyone who was dependent on it and for all of the animals and plants that lived in um, relationship to it. But we're not, right, we're not on that timeline. Instead, we're on this timeline where the tree is mostly gone from the forest. And so I'm, I think there we need to think about, well, what are the other alternatives? What else could we do? And there are some other um, approaches to trying to restore restore the chestnut, trying to find a way of helping the chestnut out of this um, fix that it's in. Um, and so I don't, yeah, I didn't know about some of these. Um, I didn't know a lot about forestry before I started working on this. So one thing that people, that researchers worked on was mutagenesis. So that's bombarding seeds with radiation in hopes that you can um, induce a mutation that will be beneficial for the purposes that you need. Um, so people have worked on, with a chestnut on that and haven't had, haven't had luck. There's another approach, which is to crossbreed the American chestnut with the species that already have a evolutionary, you know, have evolved resistance, right? So that's Chinese chestnut species and Japanese chestnut species. And that program is supported by the U.S. Forest Service um, and the American Chestnut Foundation. And it's, it's done quite a lot of work. Um, and in the early days of that program, it was hoped that the Chinese chestnut resistance came from a small number of genes so that it could be bred into a line that was predominantly American chestnut and still retained the, the, the tolerance to the blight. But um, it seems like that's not the case. So it, it seems to be the case that many genes need to be working together in order for a tree to be blight tolerant. And the, the back cross breeding program has found that those individual trees that maintain the American chestnut traits. So for instance, they grow taller, they're less branching, so they could compete better in a natural forest environment compared to a Chinese chestnut. Those individual trees are not the ones that are carrying the blight tolerance with them. So um, it has been a real problem to try to create a line that both has American chestnut traits and blight tolerance that's brought in from uh, hybridization with Chinese chestnuts. 
Um, and then there's another response, which is to collect seeds from reproducing American um, trees in the hopes that those surviving plants are some that have some natural resistance. Um, and so those breeding programs have also have a lot of hope and there's ongoing hope that maybe one of these trees that we can sometimes discover in the forest that's surviving the blight, um, that it has some kind of natural resistance rather than just being lucky. Uh, so far, we haven't found that, maybe we will in the future. At any rate, so there are these different ways of approaching the problem. And I think at a certain point, my understanding from talking to people is at a certain point several decades ago when the genetic modification program was new, there was competition between these different arms. But now something, and I really can't say enough about the American Chestnut Foundation and the way that they work as a hub that brings different stakeholders together, researchers, tree breeders, government agencies as a way of sharing information and coordinating programs and initiatives so that people can cooperate on this problem. Because now it's clear that uh, in order for, assuming that the genetic modification, modified variety is approved, in order for it to be restored to the forest, there will need to be a lot of, um, uh, genetic diversity brought in. And so these other programs, they've, I mean, they've developed all kinds of techniques for growing chestnuts more efficiently. They've developed all kinds of basic knowledge about the trees and how to manipulate them and grow them and what they need um, and where they grow well. Um, and they've developed banks of genetic diversity from legacy American chestnut trees that then can be combined in the future with the genetically modified variety to add in the genetic diversity that, that would be absolutely necessary for trees to survive in the wild, you know, in the different, in the different um, climates that we have up and down the coast. So I really like that. That part of the story is very exciting to me, the way that it takes people with shared values coming together um, and coordinating in this really complex kind of initiative. It sounds really hopeful, like in general, like especially with the huge number of environmental and in many cases, plant specific, like climate change, environmental pressures and problems that are coming out. It's It sounds really hopeful. I think that like there are examples of organizations that are able to facilitate and move forward that type of cooperative work. I was really interested, um, especially because you are a philosopher of science as well, as someone who considers um, ethics in a scientific practice in restoration. Um, one thing that really stood out to me as I was studying a feminist philosophy of science was the way that sometimes gender can show up in our doing of science. And so how social values and social assumptions end up influencing the way that we 
do science, but also some of the ways that we read data and have certain observations. And so I'm really interested in the dichotomies of passivity and activity. Um, a basic example might be people characterizing in human reproduction the egg and the sperm um, as strangely gendered. So like the egg might be seen as passive and receptive while the sperm is aggressive and active, or at least according to my uh, high school health class. <laughs> um, but I think sometimes plants can be read also as passive rather than active. Um, whether this has anything to do with gender, I don't know. But in your work with trees, do the plants appear active or passive or not even fall into this type of dichotomy or characterization? So my dissertation was in feminist philosophy of science. I completely get where you're coming from. The way that we have some sort of general categories and they almost like have an emotional flavor in our mind. They're not necessarily categories that we have clear and specific ideas about, but they work in the way that metaphor works to make some things seem more attractive and other things make us seem more skeptical or, or fearful. And I think that this kind of um, sort of like building off of metaphors comes into the way that we interpret some of the ethical categories. So what counts as arrogance, what counts as control, the ways in which control might be masculine, um, and the ways in which um, other kinds of uh, activities might be coded feminine. And, an, and another thing that we, that we like to do as humans is keep those categories distinct. So if they seem, if part of it seems active, but other parts of it seems passive, then the story maybe doesn't make as much sense to us. It's harder to like process what should happen and how it's happening. Um, and the, the place where I see this language of active and passive coming into this story, it intersects with ideas about um, arrogance and humility. And it's the question of what kind of management is better and, and what's better for the trees and what's better for the forest um, and which is more, what kinds of management are, are more mm, ethically grounded. And so, so first of all, it is a, our, our forests are not natural. So I'm just like gonna lay that out. And if, if anyone disagrees with that, then you know we don't really share common ground. So the forests in the Eastern United States are no longer, there may be some, some pockets of old growth, there's some remnant forests, um, but like in New York state where I live, something like 90% of the forests have been cut by the late 1800s. And we're now in a period of reforestation. This is one of the places on the entire globe where reforestation is happening the fastest. And that's just because there are farm fields that are being abandoned. I don't know, the emerald ash borer might be affecting that negatively because there's so many dead trees in our woods right now. But, um, but generally reforestation is happening here, but these are not untouched forests. So when we go out in the woods, you know, our public lands and also private forests, many times they have been not only logged, but they've been plowed and they're, so they're old agricultural fields. 
And then on top of that, we have climate change and then we have introduced species, we have um, invasives at all kinds of um, levels of forest structure from trees to shrubs to undergrowth. And we had this opportunity to use, a, to introduce a biotech tree. And there's the question of whether that is a, uh, an expression of, a further expression of dominance that we have fixed something in the lab and do we think that we can put it out in the forest and that will solve the problem? Or, which seems like an exercise of agency, right? Like that seems like an exercise of humans trying in yet one more way to control what the forest does, what it looks like and what grows there. Or could we see it, could we see the use of biotech as something that sort of makes a big change all at once, but then allows the tree to take care of itself. So it's unclear, like from one perspective, this kind of using biotechnology is a very active, invasive, intrusive kind, kind of um, activity. From another perspective, the idea is we could make a change and it like sort of like restarts evolution. It re could restart that process so that if we have enough trees and enough genetic diversity that we can, we can get them out in the forest, then we can kind of like let the chestnut be that it can, it can then work towards reestablishing itself, maybe without quite so much control from humans. And I think that this in this case, the chestnut is just one example of many, where I think that increasingly we're going to be asking this question of whether we want to continue active management or whether there are various things that we can use like translocations or biocontrols or genetic modification or hybridization or allowing novel ecosystems to happen such that our management can be more passive and we can just let right, let the forest be or let various ecosystems run their course, even though it will represent a break or a change with what came 100 years ago. Because right now, I mean, I think about this, for instance, in terms of some of the ecosystem, some of the wetland ecosystem management that we do in order to maintain this sort of function, we have to do, you know, do all kinds of things to remove some of the invasive species like Phragmites. And it has to be done, redone every year, every year, every year, every year. And so that's process of managing our ecosystems is ongoing and it threatens to bring in more new things. So every time people go in um, to try to remove something, they could be bringing in more seeds from elsewhere, right? They could be bringing in more um, pests of other kinds from elsewhere and they are upsetting the, the processes that are going on right at that moment. So this question of like, what's the right kind of management and which is more respectful of the system itself, I think is something that we haven't worked out. Thank you again so much for joining us today. This has been such a wonderful conversation and I feel like I've learned so much. Thank you, Kate. I really enjoyed this conversation and I love hearing all of your conversations. <laughs> Wonderful. Hopefully you'll be able to come on the pod again soon um, and we can talk more about wetlands. Oh, I love wetlands. <laughs> Thank you.
If you're interested in learning more about networking with plants in the Anthropocene, please visit our website, networkingwithplants.org, or feel free to email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Thank you again for joining us. I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to uh, having our next chat with a wonderful plant person. Until then, go explore your local forests. Music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.